Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we begin with a terrible number. The UK is now the first country in Europe with over 100,000 COVID deaths. Fatalities already five times the level that the UK's chief scientific advisor had said would be a good outcome for Britain back at the start of the pandemic. Well, speaking in Downing Street last night, Boris Johnson said he was deeply sorry for every life lost and vowed to work with greater resolve to beat the virus. I'm sorry to have to tell you that today the number of deaths recorded from COVID in the UK has surpassed 100,000. And it's hard to compute the sorrow contained in that grim statistic. The years of life lost, the family gatherings not attended, and for so many relatives, the missed chance even to say goodbye. And then Labour's leader Keir Starmer has described the figure as a national tragedy, arguing that ministers were too slow to impose lockdowns, providing protective equipment and testing. That number of 100,000 is twice the number we lost in the Blitz, and it's the size of small towns across um, the United Kingdom, you know, Bath or Stevenage. And then speaking this morning, the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, has said ministers tried to take the right decisions at the time, but there are no doubt things could have been done better. Well, let's now talk to Chris Hazard, who's Sinn Féin MP for South Down in Northern Ireland. Uh, Chris, thanks for being with us on the programme. Now, the 100,000 figure for the UK is obviously horrific. Uh, the current death toll in Northern Ireland, I believe, stands at 1,763, dramatically less, obviously much smaller population, but one in a thousand, wherein in UK as a whole it's 1.5. Now, that suggests Northern Ireland, in terms of protecting lives, is getting it right, doesn't it? Well, I think the first thing we have to say, obviously, that, you know, these very difficult times, the thoughts always here with those people who have lost loved ones time in this year. Um, I, I do believe that um, the vast majority of people in governments, no, no matter where they are, um, do try their best to be able to do what they are. But I think there's no doubting that uh, the legacy uh, of austerity Britain, um, unfortunately, has seen us, you know, across these islands, and because of sturdy, but very hard also in the south of Ireland from the previous government, and it has left health systems very vulnerable um, to, the, to a pandemic like this. We know that the Western world has taken its eye off the ball when it comes to preparing for the likes of a, of a pandemic. We see that also in the United States of America. So it's been very challenging um, for ministers for health. It's been very challenging for our health agencies on the ground who are dealing with this. Um, and for communities as well, we have to remember that people by and large have been locked down or have been living under restrictions now for the best part of the year. It's been very, very challenging. There's going to be huge um, 
schism in society when we move forward, huge scarring when we move forward. There's no doubt uh, a reservoir of mental health issues. We know that domestic violence has been on the rise. And there are young people obviously living very, very different lives as to what they would have been ordinarily in school and playing with friends and all the rest of it. So, you know, there's lots of work to do now moving forward to ensure uh, that we can build the type of society that is much more resilient, not just, of course, to pandemics, but the huge challenge of climate change is coming around the corner at us as well and needing to do the right thing on there. Yeah, a lot to think about, Chris. Um, I mean, the one thing that seems like the salvation is the vaccine rollout. So far, though, I mean, you'd agree it's been pretty impressive from the UK. Well, I, th- I think the vaccine rollout uh, has been fairly good. Um, I think there's, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, I think the um, disparities with some other areas flags up again. Um, the limitations of privatised healthcare. When you look at um, societies across the world that have been good at rolling this out, it certainly suggests that those who are very um, devolved to systems, health systems, those who are very good um, data collection practices and services such as the NHS would have, um, are able to, to be able to reach out into community and to do this much quicker. But it also flags up, obviously, the need to protect such a service and, and to invest and enhance such a service um, going forward. You know, we know one of the big worries, of course, with any future trade agreement with the United States and, you know, we know with the, even trade agreements with um, Canada, for example, it opens up this um, public asset to private interest. And again, if you look across the world where some areas are failing to deliver this, it's the role of the private interest and that is stymieing that ability to do so. And Chris, one of the things that has shown up is the, uh, or put pressure on really, I suppose, is the devolved governments within the UK in terms of so much of the of the policing of it, of the uh, imposition perhaps of lockdowns, but also to some extent the role of the vaccine, the uh, mobilising of the health service. That's all come down to a lot of policies, for example, at Stormont. Do you think the Stormont administration has done it well overall? Well, I think it's been hugely challenging. There's, there's no doubt um, about that. You know, as challenging as it is for a one-party government to be able to, to, to be able to deal with this effectively, you can imagine the difficulties in a five-party um, coalition. Um, you know, there have been calls, different um, calls or different approaches from different parties at all different times. Um, so the executive have had to wade their way through that. They've had to try to find consensus. Um, I think it's been regrettable at times um, that the likes of the DUP, for example, um, have been far too um, pro-business um, and have put the interests of the economy ahead of the interests of public health. Um, they actually used um, a veto, um, which was <laughs> designed originally with a Good Friday Agreement to protect minority rights um, to prevent public health advice being implemented. So there's certainly been bumps in the road uh, in dealing with this. However, I think on the whole, um, they've managed to plot a course that has prioritised public health. And I think on the whole, um, they are certainly getting to a position with the rollout of the vaccine now that we can start to see some light at the end of the road um, later this year. Yeah, but then we're still seeing breaches in the rules from, uh, from, from from public figures. I mean, I believe there's a funeral of a veteran Republican in Derry on Monday, several Sinn Féin councillors there, and the police saying that that seemed to breach COVID regulations. So we're still having issues getting, getting things right. Well, I think um, public compliance with restrictions has been an issue right across the piece, not just here in in Ireland, but across everywhere. Um, You're right, there there was a funeral this week. However, uh, I I don't think it's fair to suggest that there was Sinn Féin wraps at that funeral. Um, I think what has been said was that there was um, a Sinn Féin councillor was uh, observing the funeral from from the roadside. 
Um, so, look, that's an issue for the police. People, we need people, obviously, to adhere to, to social distancing rules and the, the guidelines that's there to, to ensure that we don't get the type of community transmission that we've seen before um, and that we start to bring these numbers down. Um, again, I think if we look at the numbers of, across the piece and across the islands um, in the last coming down, but we must not get complacent. We must now maintain um, our adherence to these rules and ensure that the you know the people working at the front line when it comes to health, the people working at the front line when it comes to retail and, and everything else um, are being protected as much as possible uh, and that we allow the vaccine to be able to be rolled out uh, and, as I say, till we get back to some type of normality some stage later this year. Now, of course, it isn't the only problem, uh, the only challenge, really, at the moment, certainly, in Northern Ireland. The One of the big challenges is the aftermath of Brexit. We've heard stories about empty shells. We had the uh, the First Minister uh, of Northern Ireland uh, on the programme uh, just last week telling us about the effort she's making to try to make sure that the shells are full, but she is blaming the protocol uh, that, that exists, that, that, that set up the system, including a national uh, border, as it were, down the Irish Sea. Um, you, Sinn Féin supported that protocol. Don't you bear some responsibility for the empty shelves? Uh, no. Uh, I, I certainly, I, I think what you're seeing from the DUP leader is uh, attempts, very cynical attempts to divert responsibility for their um, policy when it comes to Brexit. Um, we said from the very start we were opposed to Brexit. We said from the very start that Brexit would mean additional costs, that Brexit would mean additional barriers and burdens and frictions. We pointed this out. We said it was simply not possible to have Brexit, Brexit uh, and to still have frictionless trade across these islands and with the continent and everywhere else. Um, we were right. Um, there's simply no way to, to square that circle uh, without increasing um, the friction and the cost. And the DUP told us that that was nonsense, that they would be able to have a Brexit um, that would be, deliver the type of sunny uplands that the Tories um, spoke about for a long time. Um, I think the DUP inevitably, again, they were warned about this, the DUP inevitably were used by the Tory right wing and when they no longer served the purpose, they were thrown under a bus because at the end of the day, both the British government and the European Union were very clear from the very get-go that the Good Friday Agreement, the Irish peace process, will be absolutely prioritised throughout this um, process of negotiations since 2016, that they wouldn't countenance any hardening of the border uh, on the island of Ireland and we would have to find alternative solutions. So what we're seeing now, and I, I think it's it's, it's not really the, the, the problems that we're experiencing in the north, and of course in Dublin, the, the problems um, with importing um, goods in Dublin are much worse than they are in Belfast. Yeah. And this is because we can't get away from the fact that we are in the middle of the biggest trading shock that these islands have experienced in decades. Um, the British government ran down the, the clock in 2020, mm taking away time for businesses to be able to familiarise themselves with the new import procedures. You know, that's that's the big problem here. Chris, this is amid, all that, reality. amid all that, is, is soon a good time for a border referendum? Well, I think I think we're moving towards a referendum on Irish unity. There, there is no doubt about that. I think Brexit has been a catalyst in, in that process. Um, I think Johnson and the Tories... We've now had 10 years of Tory rule yeah. from Westminster. I think people are sick to the back teeth of it. And I think that yeah. is increasing the appetite for a border poll. And what we're saying now in our messages now, that the British and Irish governments must start planning for this. Brexit shows right. how not to do this. We 
We can't have a referendum without a plan. We need to start planning. Nobody's calling for the poll tomorrow, but it has to happen soon. And we need to be able to give people their option about the way forward. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is happening in the world of politics. Uh, And we start with the efforts to stem the spread of coronavirus variants, uh, a huge issue in this latter part of the pandemic. The government today introducing a limited hotel quarantine system for passengers arriving from the highest risk countries. There was some speculation over exactly what this policy would look like. Bloomberg sources saying that the measures are expected to apply to arrivals from countries like South Africa and Brazil. So it will be sort of a list rather than a blanket ban by the sounds of things. That decision was made by ministers at a meeting yesterday night and Home Secretary Priti Patel due to make the official announcement later today. So something to look forward to there. Yes, well, speaking of borders, there is, of course, Brexit. Now, UK border officials have begun asking some EU citizens who live here to show evidence they are legal residents. That's according to Politico. Following the end of the Brexit transition period, border officials are entitled to ask questions as to whether a non-British national is entering the country as a tourist or as a resident. But EU diplomats say some officials have gone beyond that, requiring EU nationals living in Britain to provide documentation to prove their settled or pre-settled status. The deadline for EU nationals resident in the UK to apply for such status is June the 30th, and it's a breach of the law to ask for such documentation until that date. Yeah, I was a bit bemused by this, because I thought there was a whole row a little while ago that people who were getting settled status didn't have any evidence of it. It was all held by the Home Office, and that was an issue. So if they don't have anything to show... I'm not sure how they can be asked to to show their papers. Anyway, we'll see how that one plays out. Uh, And then we've got this one from HSBC, defending itself against British accusations that it's become a tool of the Chinese authorities. Um, So the CEO, Noel Quinn, spoke to MPs. He was testifying in front of them. He said the bank had no option but to close the account of an exiled Hong Kong lawmaker. He said it was driven purely by the need to comply with local laws. If the question was, um, am I willing to walk away from Hong Kong? The answer is no. Uh, and we're too committed as an institution through our heritage and our history. And we believe firmly in that um, uh, the economy and the communities, and we want to continue to help it develop. And the bank says it's troubled by recent unrest in the city, but finding itself somewhat in the middle of it in this instance. Yes, yeah, somewhat troubled by, uh, by political investigation on both sides, it sounds like. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Labour is calling for the government to cut the size of juries from 12 to 7 to help clear the backlog of criminal cases waiting to come to court. They say resorting to so-called wartime juries would reduce the space needed to hold socially distanced trials and reduce the risk of infection. Labour says victims of violent offences are facing delays of up to four years now in getting justice. These measures would echo those used during the Second World War when numbers of jurors were reduced, except for murder and treason trials. Yeah, and when you get into it, it raises the question of whether we should be using juries at all, which is a matter of legal debate. But we'll leave that to one side, get back to our top story, the UK becoming then the first European country 
to record 100,000 coronavirus deaths. It's a sobering figure. It's leading many people to question, as they might, what could have been done differently. So joining us now is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Um, Therese, I was drawn by a piece in The Atlantic uh, that argued that a successful vaccine rollout at this point can turn the narrative around for the government, leave a more positive, lasting memory of this crisis. Do you agree with that assessment or are, are we now permanently scarred politically by what's happened so far? Yeah, I mean, that is a sort of question of whether it's politically survivable for Boris Johnson. And um, we've seen the hashtag resign Johnson trending this morning. That was inevitable after that you know, grim milestone was reached. But the argument is that, um, you know, memories will be short lived as the vaccination uh, rollout, uh, which has been extraordinarily successful so far, uh, takes hold. We'll, uh, you know, end up with um, um, one of the best vaccination programs or fastest vaccination programs anywhere in the world. And people will, um, you know, if not forgive, begin to forget um, the pain and the sorrow of, of this past year and all of the mistakes that have been made. Because, you know, in the end, we're wired for optimism bias. We like to see the good. And, you know, no country has really been covered in glory in this thing. And, you know, I think that there's probably a lot to that. Um, and nobody can really discount Boris Johnson's ability to sort of turn things around, to survive, to, to change the narrative. He's, you know, done that many times in his career. I think there actually there's a more interesting question, though, and that is how do you explain the string of failures that has produced one of the highest death rates per capita in the world and yet also the vaccination success. I mean, how do we get it both so wrong and so right? I think that's the key question when we talk about rebuilding Britain, because, you know, we could talk endlessly about the kind of political horse race, but in terms of how does this country um, rebound from so devastating a pandemic, and, you know, obviously devastating not just in terms of the number of deaths, but in the social impact, in the widening inequalities, in the economic economic uh, and the economic impact, then you, you really need to harness the lessons from the vaccination success. So I think that's, you know, that that will be the key question for me is can the government replicate that? You know, in science, we talk about reproducibility as being the gold standard of, you know, any experiment. And, and that's the real question. Can they can they reproduce um, the elements of that vaccine success in other areas? And the problem is at the same time, and the government's tangling with this, also uh, with the backbenches, their own backbenches, not really very keen on a lot of what they're doing and pushing, if anything, in the opposite direction. I mean, is there a risk there of the Conservatives themselves um, becoming politically toxic on both sides? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the sort of key point here. And again, if we look at what's made the vaccination program so successful, uh, the vaccine tax task force led by Kate Bingham was very independent. It reported directly to the prime minister. It had a clear objective and it was sort of insulated from these kinds of political wranglings and therefore was able to take, you know, some some pretty risky um, but calculated decisions. Whereas when it comes to the lockdowns, we've just seen it endlessly um, wrapped up in uh in, in these sort of political uh questions about you know what are the costs and and the uh 
pressure on Boris Johnson to justify his decisions, the pressure on him to uh, lift lockdown restrictions earlier than, than the scientific advisors were telling him. So, you know, that's one reason, I think, um, in a nutshell, why we are where we are today. And you don't really see any signs that that's going to um, change. In fact, it may actually get worse because the faster these vaccines get rolled out, the more the pressure on Johnson will be to just end the lockdown restrictions potentially prematurely. And obviously, we don't know whether, um, you know, other variants of the vaccine, uh, sorry, other variants of the virus are going to um, affect the vaccines or affect the the vaccination rollout. So that's an area of uncertainty that he'll have to keep Mm. in mind. And then what about Labour here? I mean, we played a bit of Starmer at the top of the show referring to, to, to this situation as a national tragedy. The danger, of course, though, is that if he goes too far, he's going to be seen as politicising the pandemic, and that is not something that he wants to be. Yeah, it's a horrible position for the leader of the opposition to be in because, you know, his job is to oppose and hold the government's feet to the fire. And yet, you know, it is a national crisis and people will expect him um, also to, you know, to either put forward, uh, you know, solutions um, or or to try to find ways to to be constructive. And I'm not sure that a lot of his criticism is really cutting through to the public. Um, He risks sounding just sort of repetitive. And, you know, Boris Johnson calls him Captain Hindsight. And the reason that (laughs) that sort of resonates is uh, because quite often you hear uh, the leader of the opposition, uh, you know, saying that that policies were were wrong after the fact. Sometimes he has uh, advocated for uh, you know, for changes earlier on, but I'm not sure how much the public really has uh, uh, kept that score. So, um, you know, I think Starmer's uh, Starmer's not wrong, but whether he can get garner more followers for Labour with that approach, you know, it's that's sort of doubtful. And talking of dilemmas, I mean, there's a rather interesting term, which as you probably know, called the prisoner's dilemma. And we were talking about, we're visiting that in a way in the whole issue of vaccine nationalism at the moment. We know there's a lot of problems with states competing as to who gets it, who gets them early, who gets the largest amount. Big row, of course, between AstraZeneca and the EU at the moment. But uh, your colleague, Lionel Laurent, makes that point that perhaps it is states refusing to compromise even when it's in their best interests. Yes, exactly. So we know that this pandemic, um, you know, by, by, by very definition is global, which makes uh, states dependent on each other, at least if we plan to keep trading and, and traveling to each other's countries. Um, so, you know, that, you know, on one level makes it absurd that you, you know, you could have a situation where countries um, refuse to share vaccines or are fighting with each other over supply. You know, on the other hand, it's perfectly um, rational for for uh, governments to want to uh, secure the supply for their own citizens first. Um, and what we've seen in the last few days is a lot of uh, recriminations from the EU. They don't understand why, you know, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine could be supplied um, to the UK, 100% of the contracted doses apparently, but only sort of 40% to the EU. So there is uh, there's a, a lot of... Um, uh, you know, accusations being flung around and dissatisfaction. And as, as my colleague Lionel um, notes, you know, the way through this 
is going to be more cooperation and also obviously beefing up supplies. And, um, you know, if, if the upside of all this protectionism is to show how interpe- interdependent we all are in a health yeah. emergency, then, then that might have a positive uh, impact overall. But, I, you know, I think it's one reason the U.K. government has been so reluctant to uh, give us any details about how much supply is in the system. There's a lot of secrecy surrounding that, partly because, you know, precisely this danger that they will be accused of hoarding and, uh, and not sharing. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.